All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll be getting in verse 1 this morning. And James writes, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. A pastor was out riding his bicycle one afternoon when he came across a little boy pulling a lawnmower behind him. And the pastor was wondering what this little guy was doing, so he pulled up next to him and said to the little guy, he said, son, what are you doing with that lawnmower? He says, I'm pulling it. (laughs) It's obvious, isn't it? And as he was pulling this little lawnmower, the pastor said, well, where are you taking it? Well, I'm taking it home. And the pastor said, well, why? He says, well, I'm trying to earn enough money to buy a new bicycle. Well, the pastors took a moment to consider because he himself was looking for a lawnmower and he just happened to be on a bicycle. So he came up with the idea and he asked the little boy, he says, listen, how about we swap, we trade? You take my bicycle and I'll take the lawnmower. I'm in need of a lawnmower. And the little boy thought about it for a moment and then decided, hey, this was a good deal. So as the little boy got on the bike and began to ride away, the pastor began to pull on the ripcord of the lawnmower, and it wasn't starting. And so as the little boy was pulling away, the pastor yelled and said, hey, I can't get this lawnmower to start. And the little boy turned around and said, well, the only way it'll start is if you cuss at it. The pastor said, well, I haven't cussed in years. So I don't know how this is going to work. And the little boy said, don't worry about it. After pulling on that thing for five to ten minutes, you'll learn how again quickly. It doesn't take much to draw out of our hearts what's already within them. James here tells us that the wars and the fighting that we see within the body of Christ originates within us. And he actually takes it two levels. He takes it to the heart of the individual, but also the reason that the heart is in conflict with itself, therefore taking it to a further level, helping us to understand why these things manifest about. Now, 
He begins with a question, like James often does, to hopefully provoke his readers' thoughts. And he asks them, in verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, he's writing to a church group, a church like this. Christians apparently weren't getting along with one another. And James wants to get to the heart of the matter. He uses the word battles and fights. We translate it in the New King James, the word wars, which unfortunately gives us a larger uh, picture of the conflict. Of course, we think of wars between nations, but he was really talking about wars between groups of people amongst and within the body of Christ, fights and quarrels, etc., And James says, why is this happening amongst you? And he begins to proceed to tell us why these things are happening. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? This is his allusion to the the difficulties between the old life and the new life. The flesh and the spirit. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, we know that the flesh wrestles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And therefore he encourages us that if we don't want to succumb to the temptations and to the lusts of the flesh, let us therefore walk within the spirit. So James says that why you are fighting and quarreling amongst yourselves is actually a problem of the heart. It's a desire that you have for the pleasures of this world. And you are warring because you do not have those pleasures of the world. For he says in verse 2, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. The conflict that was raging within them was boiling over. And it was due to the fact that it appears that they wanted the pleasures of the world alongside of the promises of Christianity. The pleasures of this world alongside the pleasures, I'm sorry, the promises of Christianity. They were conflicted, they were divided within their own hearts. Uh, As one had said, they wanted the best of both worlds. And they weren't obtaining it. And he says, the reason you haven't obtained those things that you desire is because you have not asked for them. And of course, he's referring to asking from God. But he's getting now to the core root element of why they are struggling in the way that they are. It is interesting that so many people today struggle with the sin of covetousness. It's a sin that we don't talk about enough in America, but unfortunately it's manifested and prevalent in America and in the hearts of the American Christian. American Christianity has told us that God wants us to have the best that the world has to offer for us and the kingdom of God. We've often been told that Christianity is simply a means to obtaining all those things that we want. We've promised individuals that if you come to Jesus Christ, all your problems will dissipate. All of your uh, conflicts will resolve. 
Your marriage will be healed. Your children will be prosperous. You will be prosperous. You will be healthy. We've made all of these claims that the Bible doesn't promise. We've created a consumer mentality Christianity here in America. We've had books written over the years that I think exemplify this the best. Have your best life now. But the Christian life comes with many promises. The promises of peace. The promises of joy. The promises of love. But those promises are not uh, divorced from or void from the troubles of this world. Often it becomes harder when we become Christians, doesn't it? We find that as we are sanctified and God is drawing us closer to Him, we look at the world differently than those around us. We see that God's moral standards is not the standard of this world. And therefore the conflicts begin. But Jesus told us up front that the heart of Christianity is found in this, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Him. These individuals, Jewish individuals who had become Christians, were still absolutely uh, consumed with the ideas of the Mosaic Covenant. That if they obeyed God, they would be blessed in material ways and find riches and prosperities, etc. But they weren't doing so now. And so those desires for those pleasures were now conflicting in their own heart. And they were trying to have the best of both worlds. But James says that the reason that your heart is conflicted and you desire such pleasures is because you truly haven't sold yourself, surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. In verse 3, he says, You ask and you do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The things that you are looking for, the things that you are desiring, when you do pray for them and God does not provide them for you, you become further angry. You become further frustrated. And further conflicts arise among you. But the reason God hasn't blessed you with those things is due to the fact that you want to spend those things on your own pleasures, your own self-fulfillments, your own uh, material gain and your own personal prosperity. And James says these attitudes that you see within your own heart are due to, and here we go from level one, talking about the heart of the individual causing the problems, such as wars and conflicts, he goes now to level two. Level two is found in verse four. And here is the true heart of the problem. Paul said it this way, that the problem is, is that we have not made Christ preeminent in our life. One had said it this way. I believe it was Um, G. Campbell Morgan, who said that the throne of our heart only occupies one. We must choose if that throne shall be occupied by Christ or if we ourselves will occupy that place that only Christ should reside. It is imperative that you and I understand that becoming a Christian, 
bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saying to God in the new life in which He has given us, not our will be done, but Your will be done. And at the end, we're going to find six ways that we can move our heart from this conflicted state into true holiness and whole surrender to God. One wrote, Dr. William MacDonald, in his wonderful commentary, the Believer's Bible Commentary, he says this, What causes all these fightings? It arises from the strong desires within us which are constantly struggling to be satisfied. There is a lust to accumulate material possessions. There is a drive for prestige. There is a craving for pleasure, for the gratification of bodily appetites. These are powerful forces are at work within us. We are never satisfied. We always want more. And yet it seems we are constantly frustrated in our own desires to get what we want. The unfulfilled longing becomes so powerful that we trample on those who seem to obstruct our progress in getting them. To the point where we will see that he says that we will go as far as to murder and to possess those things that others have. But notice what he says here in verse 4. He uses terms that these Jewish believers in Jesus Christ would have been completely familiar with. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. And he's using these words specifically to provoke within them the idea that they are committing spiritual adultery against God. As a pastor, I have worked with couples who have fallen into adultery. I find it to be one of the most devastating, destroying sins that one can experience. The family is devastated. The husband and wife are separated and trust has been completely eroded within it. The working through it is often very difficult and takes great grace to accomplish. Often the decision is therefore to simply divorce. And yet... The divorce itself brings other consequences with it. Adultery is an absolute devastating sin. Now, God uses it concerning His people. He has since the Old Testament. On Wednesdays, we're looking at the book of Hosea that really illustrates this entire concept. Hosea was asked by God to do something unique, something that it's hard to imagine. He was asked to marry a prostitute. Knowing that she would be unfaithful to him, God used it as an illustration to demonstrate to his people their unfaithfulness to him. They had children together, and the names of those children indicated that God was going to scatter his people, that God was going to judge his people, that God was going to divorce his people. Jesus clearly tells us that the one permissible reason for divorce is adultery. It's a devastating sin. Many Christians today, I don't know if they understand that spiritual adultery is possible. But unlike 
the children of Israel, who demonstrated their spiritual adultery by going after other gods, the gods of Molech, the god of Asherah, the god of Baal. These gods took their affection and attention away from the God who took them out of the land of Egypt, and God called them adulterers for doing so. You see, your relationship with God has always been viewed as a marriage. Let me say that again. Your relationship with God has always been viewed as a marriage. Notice what Isaiah says in 54 verses 5 and 6. He says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife, when you were refused, says your God. This concept of marriage continues in the New Testament. As God drew His people out of the nation of Egypt, He became a husband to them, and He was their bride. And as they went off to worship other gods, He accused them of spiritual adultery in doing so. Now as Christians, it is interesting that again, this concept, this understanding, theological understanding of the nature of our relationship with God should be described as one who is in a marriage to God, which means, of course, complete faithfulness. It means complete devotion. And as Paul said, it means preeminence. It is when we become conflicted and we begin to divide our affections that we become uh, frustrated within where the, sat- the lack of satisfaction becomes overwhelming within us. And we begin to go after no longer the gods of the pagan nations, but as James says here clearly, we go after the world. For Paul said concerning our relationship to God in 2 Corinthians 11.2, he said, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Speaking of the church. When he talked about marriage in Ephesians 5.32, he again said, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Our marriage to our spouse is meant to reflect our relationship with God. Now, I believe that sets the tone for each and every marriage, Christian marriage, that there is. You may not be aware of this, but it is possible to do good things in a selfish manner. It is possible to desire the things that God has for us that are uh, righteous and uh, a blessing and so forth, such as marriage or children, etc. But those things must be those things must be committed unto Christ. For example, if I, married, if I marry for the simple purpose of satisfying all my personal desires, I am going to be absolutely disappointed. Because no one could fulfill those things. The satisfaction that I'm looking for as a Christian only comes from Christ. 
And as hard as my spouse may try, and as hard as you may try as their spouse, you can never satisfy those things that only Christ can satisfy. When children come about, we must understand them in the same context. These are uh, individuals that God has blessed us with that we may train up in the way of the Lord. The children belong to Him. And if I look simply to have children to satisfy my own personal desires, thinking that there's a fulfillment that I'm missing, or there's something that I can only obtain through having children, often again we are greatly disappointed because what we are truly looking for in those areas is Christ to satisfy those things. So we can do things in an ungodly way that God says are righteous. In Revelation, this marriage is then uh, consummated in heaven when the writer of Revelations, John, says in verse 7 of chapter 19, he says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Or Revelation 21.9, Then one of the seven angels who said, who, I'm sorry, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. But the Old Testament says that Israel was quickly unfaithful in their marriage to God. For Jeremiah 3.20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel says the Lord. Jesus said to Israel when he was among them, he called them an evil and adulterous generation. In Matthew 12, 39, he said, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, three days in the belly of the earth. Or when Mark wrote in Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what adultery does the Christian commit? In verse 4, notice with me that after he calls us, or accuses those who are finding themselves in such conflict as adulterers or adulteresses. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. One commentator, Douglas Moo, absolutely nailed it on the head when he stated, that these are some of the harshest rebukes in the New Testament. James is most likely one of the first New Testament letters that was written. Already Christians were struggling. And as their devotion in the Old Testament was divided between the gods of the pagan lands and the one true God, Today, James is saying, what's dividing the heart of the Christian is the division between their affections of God and of this world. And as a result, 
As a result, the individual finds themselves frustrated, angry within themselves, covetousness of what others have because they don't have it, believing that if they did, they would be happier in some way. We as Christians need to take a moment of pause at this time and ask ourselves, what is truly our relationship with the world? Now, let's define that because that's a big word. It's a big world. We're not talking about the people of this world. Paul made it abundantly clear. Jesus made it abundantly clear that we are meant to be amongst the people of this world, but unlike the people of this world. We are supposed to be amongst them that they may see the light of Jesus Christ within us. We need to be amongst them to share with them the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So it isn't the people of this world. Paul, Jesus, made that clear. When Jesus prayed in the garden in John 17, he says, Lord, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but you use them for my glory. It's not the people. It's the system. It is the architecture that Satan himself has created. He has created a world that has amplified the moment of temptation in the Garden of Eden. When he tempted Eve in the way that he did, a world system has now been created in the likeness of that temptation, containing the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This world system around us is the system that is biting for our affection. And if you notice, I don't think I have to make it very clear to see that whatever the world says, it's often, indi- it's often uh, countered, or I said just the opposite of what the Bible says. Isn't it clear? We need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is our relationship with the world system around us? The world's value system, the world's moral standards, the world's ideologies, the world's uh, materialism, the world's emphasis, the world's priorities. Do those things coexist with the ideas that God gives us in His Word? Or are we striving for something that we can truly only obtain in Christ? You see, I'm not looking for satisfaction any longer from this world. As a Christian, what I'm looking for is contentment in Christ. Now, contentment is one of those things that has somewhat been marginalized by our world. Some use it synonymously to say, well, if you're content, then you're simply complacent. Well, I don't believe contentment and complacence are interchangeable. Being content isn't necessarily a bad thing. Being content with what I have, being content with who I am, in the sense of knowing who I am in Christ and knowing that God shall supply all of my needs. That contentment is qualified by my relationship with Christ. At 54, I've realized now that the world doesn't have anything to offer that Christ cannot provide more sufficiently. And so as Christians, especially in America, in the Western world, we need to ask ourselves, have we adopted world values, world priorities, 
world ideologies, believing that they were compatible with Christianity and the Scriptures? Or are they incompatible and actually they are causing turmoil and division within our own hearts, within our own allegiance unto God, and creating within us this turmoil that manifests itself in covetousness and in fights and quarrels and in pride? John said it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He said it very clearly, showing us that the disciples were all on the same page. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not only the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Throughout the course of history, we have been shown and taught over and over and over again that at best, the world lays a foundation of shifting sand underneath our feet. Oh, there may be times that we feel that we're stable, settled, and secure. But that is quickly challenged by the difficulties that the world brings about. How things change that we cannot control. And shows us quickly that the foundation that the world offers can be quickly eroded from underneath us. But Jesus said that, of course, building it upon our lives upon Him and His Word is like building our house upon a rock. And when the storms come, and they will come, the house will stand. This is what James is getting at. He says it's an issue with your heart and the issue within your heart that is causing the issue with the heart that is causing the fights and wars is because you have divided affections between God and of this world. But, verse 5, or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? When we were born again, the Spirit of God resides within us, communing with the Spirit that has been resurrected within us. That's the whole concept of being born again. However, though, Christ is looking for total devotion. He said so very clearly throughout the New Testament. He said very clearly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible to do both. God is looking for complete and utter devotion. And notice that he said earlier that in so doing, dividing your heart amongst the affections of the world and the affections of God, you position yourself first as an an enmity with God, meaning a hostile state. But then he goes one step further to say, whoever therefore wants to be a friend 
of the world makes himself an enemy, one who is in complete opposition to God. Notice the progression there. One who is in a state of hostility towards God and one who is completely opposite or opposed to God. Now, it would be easy for us to say, oh, well, that's speaking of those who don't believe. That's speaking of those within the world. But that's not who James is writing to. He's writing to believers like you and I, saying that our hearts can be divided in such a way. But in actuality, it's either with God all or nothing. You can't ride this proverbial fence. You can't stand on the line between God and the world and think that you are in a comfortable, secure position. And he made it clear. When he said in Mark 12, verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You get a pattern here? Mind. With all of your strength. This is the first commandment. The jealousy that he talks about, meaning the relationship that we have entered into through Christ, the marriage to God, is sacred. And as we would honor our earthly marriage, so should we honor our heavenly marriage with God. And we should not have divided affections. Then James goes on and says that divided affections is either all or nothing. The concept of holiness is often reduced to the idea that something is not defiled from the world. But in Hebrew, when we talk about holiness, it means the totality of something. All of it is committed unto God. So when Peter writes, be holy for I am holy, he's saying God wants all of you. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your soul, all of your mind, with all of your strength. And you may say, well, who is he to demand that? He is the one that bought and paid for you to bring you out of the darkness into the light, out of death into life. He gave you new life in Jesus Christ. You are a child of God. You are a resident of the kingdom of heaven. And one day you shall spend eternity with him, consummating that relationship in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's who God is. That's what Christ has done on your behalf. We must never cheapen that, compromise that, by showing affection to this world. And again, I'm talking about the world system. Notice what one wrote again when he said, Worldliness is also enmity with God. Now, the world does not mean the planet on which we live or the world of nature about us. It is the system which man has built up for himself in effort to satisfy the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and the pride of life. In this system, there is no room for God or his Son. It may be a world of art, culture, education, science, or even religion. But it is a sphere in which the name of Christ is often unwelcome and forbidden, except, of course, as an empty formality. It is, in short, the world of mankind outside the sphere of the true church. To be a friend of this system means to be an enemy of God. When James uses the word friends there, he's looking at it 
in the culturistic context of that time. That culture was permeated by the uh, cultural ethics and nature of Orientalism. And so when a person was a friend with another person, it means they shared everything. It was uh, an allegiance unlike we have today. We, we cheapen friendship today, don't we? You know, we're, they're our friend one moment and they're gone the next. But in that culture, it really meant something. It was significant. It means that you were arm in arm and often you were known by the friends in who you keep. This is why Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. Who you knew was important. This is why the Jewish people refused to eat with Gentiles, thinking that they would be defiled in doing so, because in that meal they believed that they became one with each other. The true root of the idea of fellowship. This oneness with the world is prohibited by Scripture. And we have to really be careful. This isn't a problem around the entire world. But in the Western culture, it certainly is. Because we have enjoyed financial prosperity for so long, and our rights have been guarded by a constitution and legally enforced, there is much that we take for granted in our culture. Often then, we become lax in our pursuit of God, and we begin to allow the culture, the world, to set our standards. We need this type of home. We need to drive this kind of car. We need to have this amount of money in the bank. We need to do all of these things that the world dictates to us will create a stability and satisfaction that, of course, as Christians, we know only God can provide. Now, it's interesting how often uh, I watch videos from around the world and I find that in those videos of people from other countries such as China and India and so forth where they are not protected and they are not enjoying the prosperity that we are, that they are praying earnestly for us to know God in a more deep and intimate way like they do. Because when you talk about faith, it is real to them. They may not know where their next meal is coming from and they have to rely on God to provide it. It's not an option. It's a necessity in their, cult, in their Christianity. But one of the things that I've been amazed by is how often I hear of missionaries saying, when we went to these foreign places, it was amazing that these Christians, you know, even though they were under such weights of persecution and they were under such, you know, um, you know poverty scenarios, they had a peace and a joy that I never find in America. Isn't it amazing how many Christians are dealing with worry, anxiety, and fear, and so forth? It's often because we're conflicted within us, believing that we need the securities of this world to be secure in our Christian faith. I was talking to some friends recently, and we were talking about the current state of the world and our nation and so forth, and I brought up something to batter around, to discuss with them. I said, we are so conditioned to live our Christianity in a context that we have become so accustomed to. The right to assemble, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and so forth. 
with the prosperity included, the beautiful homes that we all have. I said, what happens if that context is changed? It's called a cultural, it's called, excuse me, cultural contextualization. The context that the culture creates around the Christian. Contextual, cultural contextualization. What happens if it changes? What happens if we don't have the freedom of speech anymore? It's kind of been threatened lately, hasn't it? I never heard the word censorship talked more about in the last two years, have you? What happens if we don't have the freedom to assemble, the freedom to read our Bibles, the freedom to speak our mind? What happens if we are canceled by a culture that is opposed to Christianity? We lose our jobs, lose our means of income, and so forth. What happens if our cultural contextualization changes? Can we still stand upon Christ? Because the cultural contextualization is not promised by Christ, is it? Christians have survived in every single culture that they find themselves in. Many are complaining about our president today and how difficult he's making it for Christians. And I agree, there are some things that I radically oppose and disagree with him about. But it surely isn't going to change my mind concerning Christ. I think of it this way. If Christians survived under Nero, they can survive under President Biden. If Christians can survive in communist China, under Ying, we can, you know, and North Korea and so forth, you get the idea. But if our, if our cultural contextualization is changing, then we need to know that we are truly drawing upon Christ in all things. The world will constantly challenge the sufficiency of two things within our Christian life. Number one, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Is Christ sufficient in all things? Now, of course, when I say that, I'm not saying that we cannot use the technological advances in medicine and science and so forth. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the... Is He sufficient for our salvation? Is He sufficient to sustain us until that moment that we enter into His presence? But the second thing that will be challenged constantly is God's Word. God's Word will be challenged constantly and it will be continuously painted in a picture of insufficiency. That it's no longer sufficient. These ancient writers, as Richard Hawkins, Dawkins once said, excuse me, Richard Dawkins once said, these ancient doodles are out of date. Oh, really? These ancient doodles are going to be around a lot longer than you are. So you better be careful knowing where you're going after you die. This is what he is saying here. He is saying that God has put a spirit in us that is jealous for him and him alone. And if we believe that we can divide our affections between God and this world, James says, no, you're making yourself at enmity with God and you are pursuing enemy with God. So he says here in verse 6, the way to get above this is through the grace of God, but he gives more grace. Therefore, 
he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This verse is used twice in the New Testament, and it is interesting that all that we see written previously is consolidated into the word pride for our definition. And then he gives us six things that we can do, and we will close with this today. Notice with me. First, number one, we are to submit to God. What does it mean to submit to God? Well, it means to bring everything in our life under His subjection. Ourselves, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Our marriages, our parenting, our views of money, our views of ethics, our views of sexuality, Everything must be submitted unto Christ, starting with ourselves. This means that we must subject to Him, be subjected to Him, and ready to listen to Him and obey Him. We must be tender and contrite, not proud or stiff-necked. Secondly, He then says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We must understand that through the devil, temptation comes. More specifically, through the world system in which he has created, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, temptation of our flesh comes. We must resist him. We must resist the devil. We do this by closing our eyes and hearts to his suggestions and temptations. We do it also by using the scripture as a sword of the spirit to repel him. And if we resist him, the promise is that he shall flee. Number three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We must in all ways bring ourselves into the presence of the Lord through his word and through prayer. I cannot stress the necessity of personal devotions taking time each and every day to pray and to be in God's Word. This is how we draw near to Him. This is how we learn about Him and grow in our intimacy with Him. It's through His Word. The Word keeps us balanced. It keeps our perspective focused. It keeps our heart undivided and solely upon Christ. It allows us to weather the storms, or to be drawn away by the affections of this world. We must in all things draw near to God and notice the promise given, He will draw near to you. Often Christians tell me, I feel so far from God, when in actuality God is with them. It's not He that's far from them, it's them who is far from Him. Say that ten times fast. It always begins with us. Draw near to God and He shall draw near to you. And then it goes on to our third one. Our fourth one. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I often see the first half of that verse on t-shirts and magnets and salt and pepper shakers. Draw near to God. He shall draw near to you. Well, how do we do that? Well, notice. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The hand speaks of our actions. The heart represents our motives and our desires. 
We cleanse our hands by purifying our hearts through confession and forsaking of sin, both outwardly and inwardly. As sinners, we need to confess evil acts, and double-minded people, we need to confess our mixed motives. People, Christians are, I think, a little unclear about sin in the life of the believer. Now, we are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our adoption, our entrance into heaven is all predicated upon what Christ has done for us. However, though, as we walk with God day by day, God desires to enjoy a personal, intimate, communing relationship with us. Just like a marriage. You know, there are times in our marriage where we feel very close to our spouse. When we're, if I may use the word, giddy about our relationship with our spouse. We use those pet names, honey bun, chicken lips. I don't know. I don't know where I get these things, guys. Just roll with me. I don't know where these things come from. But there are other times in our marriage where, oh, the house is just not big enough. And the only thing keeping us from separation is two bathrooms and a king-size bed or a bed and a couch. We're still married, right? But we're at odds with our spouse. The same way is true concerning the entrance of sin in the life of the believer. We sever that deep, intimate communion state with God and we enter into that state of separation. Not that we're not saved and not that God has cast us off and not that we're not his child. It's just that God wants us to deal with these things so we can enter into that beautiful relationship with him once again in the sense of that intimacy. That's what God desires from us. And that's why he says it here. We must confess our sins. When John wrote in 1 John 1.19, he says, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful. he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That was written to believers, not to unbelievers. So maybe if you feel dry or distant from God, maybe there's sin in your life that you're harboring that you need to drag out into the open and say, Lord, forgive me. David said it this way, Search my heart, O Lord, to see if there be any wicked way within me. Fifth, he goes on to say, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned... Aren't you glad you came today for this uplifting, encouraging message, Caleb? Your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. When we are convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning the sin within our life, we should not make levity of it. We should repent of it. When the the Spirit indicates to us that we are in sin, we should confess that sin before God. We should deal with that sin openly before Him and allow Him to resolve it in our life. That's what he is saying in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. What he means by that is that He will take you from that position of repentance and, you know, prostrating yourself before the Lord and saying, Oh Lord, I realize that I have sinned against you. 
But it takes humility to bring us to that point of repentance. Pride will resist that conviction. Humility will allow that conviction to have its perfect worth work within us. I'd like to read to you from C.H. Spurgeon, if I may, because he writes this concerning, what is humility of mine, he asks. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. It is no humility for a man to think less of himself than he ought, though it might rather puzzle him to do that. Some persons, when they know they can do a thing, tell you that they can't. But you should surely would not call that humility. A man is asked to take part in some good work. No, he says, I have no ability. Yet if you were to say of him, he would be offended at you for doing so. It is not humility for a man to stand up and to uh, deappreciate himself and say that he cannot do this or that and the other when he knows that is untrue. If God gives a man a talent, do you think that man does not know it? If a man has ten talents, he has no right to be dishonest to his maker and to say, Lord, thou hast not only given me five. It is not humility to underrate your endowments. Humility is, not, is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us, that he may let it be seen that he, like freight in a vessel, they tend to sink us low, meaning that we are to use these talents for his glory. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Humility is not to say, I have got this gift, but is to say, I have the gift and I must use it for my master's glory. I must never seek to honor myself for what I have that I have not received. Humility is to feel that we have no power of ourselves, but that it all comes from God. Humility is to learn on our beloved saying, lean on our beloved saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is this, in fact, to annihilate self and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ is true humility. Spurgeon was saying this, it isn't being humble to be untruthful about what God has given you. Humility is truly found in our comparison to Jesus Christ. And there is no better example of this, and this is what we'll close with today, than that found in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me. True humility is always discovered when we come face to face with the Lord. But the one that I think of often is found here in Isaiah chapter 6. And this is Isaiah speaking of himself. When he says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his, uh, his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, who the whole earth is filled of His glory, full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voices of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice what He says here next. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, he realized that his heart wasn't right with God. And I dwelled in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having, his hand, uh, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. That's a true moment of humility. When we see God in His pure holiness and we realize that we have sinned before Him and we humble ourselves before Him in that acknowledgement, it is that moment that God cleanses us before we become a believer, when we become a believer, and after we become a believer. Our sin is serious to God. Our heart must not be divided between the affections of this world and our love for God. Again, as he said, for this is the greatest commandment of all, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all of your mind. For this is the first commandment. This is what God desires. Anything else, He calls us an adulterer or an adulteress if our affections are divided between Him and this world. Be careful, because you may place yourself as an enemy of Christ. 